when you play, who's the first person to bust your ass? <laughs> right out the gate, huh? <laughs> I would say the first time I felt like I got like somebody really, you know, gave me the business. I think it was uh, it was probably Jock Vaughn. Jock Vaughn. Like, damn! I just got he, he he got me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I play the three guys. I would say that gave me gave me the hardest time, but I, I definitely gave them their own fits. Was uh, Jock, Steve Nash, and, and J Kid. I had Jock mm. in high school. I had J Kid in high school. We lost to them in the state uh, state mm. finals, and, and Steve Nash was in my conference all four years. Yeah. And so oh, yeah. I had a, a bunch of battles with Steve. You guys think all three of those guys was, you know, damn good basketball players, big time point guards, smart as hell. Yo, 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 coming to you live on location. Me and D Miles, I staying our ass at home in quarantine here in Orlando. And it's a special one, y'all. You know what I'm saying? This is our first head coach, NBA head coach. We got a real good friend of mine, my main man, coming to us live on location from Calabasas, just one exit away from D-Wade and Gabby, y'all. <laughs> Yo, man, it's a pleasure to have my boy, David Fizdale, in the building. Shout out. Appreciate you showing up for us, Fizz. Man, if you call me at 3 in the morning, I'll be there, brother. You know that. This is awesome. I appreciate y'all having me. Your neighborhood is like legendary. You got Hall of Famers, you got coaches, you got all the, the best players. Tina, Tina Thompson told me she grew up with you and uh, y'all used to play back in the day. Like, how was that when you came up, the, the neighborhood and all the people you see that succeed successful right now? We didn't, you know, we didn't know it then. We didn't yeah. realize what was happening around us, you know. Um, and it was funny, I was just talking to one of my best friends that I grew up with the other day. But, you know, it's other guys that people don't talk about that's from the same neighborhood, like Harold Minor. Harold you know, Minor. I had the Super Pro career, but Harold Minor was legendary coming yeah, up through man. that time. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, Tina was a little girl who would follow her older brother was like my, my bodyguard. He was like my, <laughs> my Q. He was like Q. He was like the dude who he ain't going to talk a lot, but but go ahead and do something out of line. And, and you're going to wake up tomorrow trying to figure out who knocked you out. Yeah. He was that guy, you know, and he could hoop. He was like, he was a heck of a point guard. He was a couple years older than me, but I stayed right underneath him all the time. And then Tina was younger than me, and Tina used to follow us to the park. Mm -hmm. And we used to try to get her to go home all the time. I stopped following her, stop following And she would just say, nope, nope, I'm coming to the park with y'all. And then eventually – it was like we started watching her, and you know how it is. Like she would call, "I got next, I got next," and right. all the fellas at the park would be, "No, nah, no, nah, you you can't get on the court." And then one day we finally let her on the court, and she started busting people's ass. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh shit! Our little sister can who, you know? And it was right. like wow. But we had, you know, at that time it was Cedric Sabalas, it was Chris Mills, it was Kevin Ollie. Uh, obviously, Jock Bond, mm -hmm. Baron Davis was a young buck, like a yeah. little kid. You know, Paul Pierce was a little kid yeah. running around the neighborhood. So we had a, such a, a 
just a plethora of different players. You know, UCLA yeah. basketball at that time was, you know, one of the top programs in the country. So my boys, the O'Bannon brothers and Toby Bailey and, and, and all J.R. Yeah. Henderson, you know, we just had so many good players that was in this area and everybody knew each other. So no matter yeah. what part of L.A. you was from, you knew the other guy because yeah, Slamming right. was our AAU at that time. Slamming Jam was Izzy Washington was the big AAU. And we all played in that. Tyus Edney. I mean, I can just keep going with names. Derek Martin, um, you know, Tracy mm. Murray and Cameron Murray. Like, yeah. It was so many guys, man. And it was uh, – and then I'm not even naming the, the hood dudes that didn't yeah. make it. Like, yeah. a lot of the hood <laughs> better than all of them. But I guarantee you, you can ask any of those people I just named, and they, we can go through a list of hood cats that was better than all of us. Yeah, you know, that's my every best hood, every, that's every city. Every city, right? You could go through a list of dudes from the shy that was just – that could have been pros, you know? Yeah. And so I, I think about the two guys on my high school team that was all city, that was player of the years, they ended up not playing – they ended up not finishing college basketball and, and finishing all of their stuff and, and, you know, ultimately kind of fell off. But – they was better than all of us, you know? Yeah. And so I'm so grateful that I got to experience that. And I really believe that it had a lot to, a lot to do with me becoming a coach yeah. and, and aspiring to be a champion and a winner. You know, the Lakers was hot when I was a kid. Showtime was everything. And – so, you know, we would go to the parades, and when you saw Magic and Bob McAdoo and Kareem and Pat Riley on these floats, it was mm -hmm. like, I'm doing that. I want to do that, yeah, you know. And right. so, you know, it ended up being surreal for me winning a title with Pat and riding the float right. with Pat, you know. And so it was like I actually fulfilled that dream as a, that I had as a young kid that all started in the hood in L.A. Guys from California, they never want to leave California and go anywhere else to school. You went to San Diego. Like, would it, could it have been anybody else? Was you thinking about leaving the state? Or you was like, nah, I got to be a little bit close to home. <laughs> I really didn't have good options out of state. Yeah. Like, the best school that was recruiting me was Montana. Montana. And I was like, <laughs> I ain't freezing. I ain't going to go freeze my ass off in Montana. But, you know, it was as crazy as it sounds, it wasn't even about staying in Cali as much as it was. I just had a really good connection with the coaches. Like, when they came to visit me, uh, I was really close to my grandfather before he passed. He was like my my anchor, and he bonded with these coaches, and I bonded with them. And uh, the coaches happened to be – I don't know if you guys know, Randy Bennett is the head coach at St. Mary's in California who always has a good year. They always push in Gonzaga and the WCC. And Hank Egan was is, is the guy that coached Greg Popovich in college at Air Force and ended up working for Greg – uh, working for Pop at, at San Antonio. And so those was the coaches that recruited me. And I just immediately clicked with them. And then I went on my visit, and it was like I walked into heaven. The school was beautiful. It was San Diego. The weather was perfect every day. And the, and the dudes on the team were, were just – they were just good guys. And I said, you know, what, this, this fits me. You know, I, I was always a guy that was looking for the right fit. Even when I picked my high school, you know, a lot of people were going to Crenshaw. You know, Kevin Ollie was on my junior high team, a bunch of other guys, and they were all like, we're going to Crenshaw, we're going to Crenshaw. And I was just like, right. you know, that's not – I'm not going to end up never playing. That's not a good fit for me. And so my second cousin was the head coach at Fremont, and he was like, look, I'm not going to promise you nothing, 
But if you come here, just know I'm going to do everything to make you a better player and I'm going to stay on your butt and, and hopefully it turns out well for you. So I went all the way to the east side and went to school over there and it ended up being the best decision I ever made because it fit me. And, and so I was never that guy that was chasing the name. I was just more about can I go somewhere where I felt like I can fit in and that I could actually have an impact. Tell me about how you made the decision when you, you know, after you finished college and, and you, you decided to not go overseas. You could have went overseas to France, but you decided that you wanted to you wanted to dive into coaching. How did you come to that decision? It was a, it was an easy decision because my two of my boys uh, who played Division One had just came home. I was I was I was scheduled to go play in France and two of them had just got sent home from France. Both of these guys could score in their sleep. And all I had heard about overseas was if you don't score, you get sent home. Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't a scorer. I was a, I was a setup guy. I was a point guard. I guarded people. I was heady. I ran the team. And, you know, and so I was like, man, am I really going to fly over to France just to go over there for a couple weeks and then get sent right back home because I'm not, you know, I'm not the kind of player that they want when I have this – even though it didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but I had this deal over in Miami where Mike Brown, who's now the top assistant with Golden State, said, man, I know this guy, Eric Spolstra. (laughs) I know this guy, Eric Spolstra, who's the video coordinator in Miami, and he needs an intern. And so that was my decision. And my whole goal was after I do the internship, I'm going to go back and play again and try to get right back to it. I'm just going to take this year to do this and get this experience under my belt. And, you know, 20-something years later, here I am. I never <laughs> went back to playing. I just ended up diving in the co- in, into coaching, and uh, it's worked out pretty well. You being a point guard, like I feel like point guards, all point guards can be head coaches. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because I feel like with a point guard, they know where everybody is on the floor. Uh-huh. They know what the coach is thinking. Like, you know, some point guards get to the point where they don't even need to look at the coach. They know who need to get the ball at this moment, at this time. They kind of be game managers. So transitioning into coaching from being a point guard, was that an easy transition? Because it was like, over, over the years, you you done put so you knew so much about everything and every player, their tendencies and all that stuff. Now you in coaching, it's like you just got to put it on the floor. It was it was natural for me, um, you know, because I would just remember, and I don't know if kids are getting the same treatment, but if you guys think about how point guards was treated when you was a kid yeah. and how bad your coach used to be on them mm-hmm. and beating yeah. that into them, that it's their job to know everybody Everything. else's job. Yeah. It's their job to know the flow of the game and who should get mm-hmm. the ball in and when to push it, when to bring mm-hmm. it out, when to run. And, and, and you had to guard and you had, you know what I mean? Like you had to quarterback your defense and, and that's why I say, like, that transition was, was – I felt like it was a, just a natural move for me. But it goes to show you the names I mentioned, like Jason Kidd. Grew up in that coach. same era, California, mm-hmm. coach. Jock Vaughn, head coach of the Brooklyn Nets right yeah. now. Like, Kevin Ali. It's just <laughs> Kevin Ali. It was yeah. a natural – because they had been beaten into them that you are a coach. You just yeah. happen to have a ball in your hands. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if kids are still getting – and the point guard position is changing so much now mm-hmm. that it's going to yeah. be interesting to see if this next generation, if it's the point guards that become the coaches. Because you're starting to see Jerry Stackhouse, 
Jawan Howard, mm-hmm. guys like that that don't necessarily play that position but had a head on them and really understood how to play and had wits about them are now starting to become great coaches in their own right. And so I think it's starting to evolve a little bit from that standpoint and moving into a different direction where you're going to start seeing all positions uh, mm-hmm. based on basketball IQ become head coaches. Right. Who was your influence? Like, uh, I know, of course, you love Magic Johnson. You, you know, uh, you're, you're from L.A. Magic was that guy. But I know uh, you watched you watched this game from so many different angles. Like, who was the ones that you grew up and you was like, man, I want to be like them. They, I love them. And they was the man. You don't know right away as soon as you think about it because I, I was slow. I had long <laughs> arms. I was light-skinned. And I played point guard. Mark Jackson was Mark like Jackson. it. Like, it was like right. My cousin, so so when I was growing up, the, the games on Monday, Big Monday on ESPN came out, and it was the yeah. Big East. Big and all East. they showed, and my cousin used to, this is when VCRs had a court. He used to record right. the games and make me watch Mark Jackson at nauseum. Him mm. and Chris Corciani and all of those guards, Chris Smith and all those guys in the Big East, he used to beat them into me where it was like you gotta be if you slow you slow you gotta be like Mark. you gotta know how to roll off of people you gotta do this and so i watched mark over and over and over again and he ended up probably being from a from a pattering pattering my game type of thing he was probably the biggest influence but ultimately my number one guy was magic it was like Magic was it, you know, and he was a big slow point guard in, in a lot of ways compared to the little quick guys he was always playing against. But it just, you know, to, I was lucky because my cousin was such a big influence on me. He would grab me and he would take me and we'd sneak into the forum through the, through the, where the, where the uh, concession people work. He had some boys that would sneak us in and we'd go up to the top of the forum and I would get to watch Laker games from up there. And it just was su- – it has such a, a – a, just just profound influence on me because Magic played the game with an incredible passion. Yeah. And it was so – winning was so important to him. And, and just – you know, I even remember that game when – it was like one of his first games and Kareem hit a sky hook to win it and he was going crazy yeah, celebrating. Yeah, jumping on him. The tight hook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember like they that. Just won the I remember that. <laughs> Hugged him so tight. All you see him was <laughs> like, squeezing yeah, yeah. him. He was like, we yeah. like they just <laughs> And it was like, uh, but it just go to show you how much it meant to him, you know. Yeah. And so that stuff stuck with me, man. And so I would say Magic and Mark Jackson, uh, for sure, were, were, were probably the guys. The guys I watched the most. And you know what else I would say, even though he was on the, the, the enemy team, and my junior <laughs> high coach used to kill me with this, he nicknamed me Little Dennis Johnson. Because oh, DJ. Yeah. DJ. That was our coach when we first got to the league. Hey, that was man. our guy. R.I.P. DJ. Man. That's my man. Right Pete, man. Yeah. I, I, I love Dennis Johnson. I got yeah. to meet him a couple times. He was just the way he played the game, the way he competed on every possession. He understood how to how to win games with his defense. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a guy that I was – my junior high coach used to beat him into me as well. Like, yeah. you know, you got to play like that. Yeah. So like those three guys. Yeah, him being in me and Q, like when we first got to uh, the Clippers, uh, we related to him so much. He was a breath of fresh air. He he meant a lot to us them years getting in L.A. and just just how he was. And we just respected him. And we used to always tell about the the uh, the one highlight. 
There's a steal by DJ. Hands it off to her. He lays it in. Like, we used to always mess, mess with him the on awareness. that. Awareness. Think about yeah. the awareness, man. Yeah. To get in that corner and know yeah. that guy's going to be there, yeah. man. Like, he, he knew, man. He had, a, he had an incredible feel for the game. And you just knew when you played against him. That, that you was in for it that night. Yeah. You know? Bruh, just, I'm you, telling you, DJ, like D Miles said, DJ, especially, you know, me, because I wasn't playing my first year as much as D Miles. So, like, he used to be the one that used to pull me to the side, talk to me, trying, you know what I'm saying, keep me, keep me in it, make sure. Because you know me, Fizz, especially at 19, I was way worse than when you came across him. <laughs> well, I was something about was crazy. And he, DJ used to, come here, come here, little <laughs> get, get over here. He grabbed me up and said, let me talk to you, man. He like, you tell me, like, you can't handle stuff like, you know what I'm saying? But he used to be be my voice, though, yeah. for real. He used to be keeping me right, boy, because I used to be out there 19, not knowing what's going on, boy, and you're not really being told a lot. It was, you need somebody yeah. like DJ that was there to talk to you. Yeah, because you know, it says a lot, too, because I do know how you are. And, and <laughs> you know, you got to, to be able to coach you, you have to have a lot of respect for that guy. And so it goes. It says a lot about DJ and the fact that you had a ton of respect for him to allow him to mm -hmm. bring balance to your game and bring balance to your mind when you was probably going through your first real basketball adversity. You yep. know, because you was a Rats. star. You was a star from the minute I saw you as a young kid. You was a star. You know, and so I think when you finally got to the league, it was like that moment of like, I'm not playing. Like, yeah, that was yeah, what? that was the like, first time where the it was bullshit. like. <laughs> and so it it took somebody like that, a champion, a guy who had been through all of it, you know, somebody that was going to tell you the truth to probably get you to come back down a level and see things from a bigger picture. Yeah. He used to tell us all the time, he was like, why y'all caring about starting? They just call your name out. Y'all played a whole second quarter and the whole fourth. Like, why would you even care that they call your name out? So that was one of the things we, we stopped tripping about starting because me and was like, fuck, we got to start in the league. Eh? And the right. DJ was like, man, if you play the whole second and the whole fourth, or at least the fourth quarter, like, you the man. That's them the key minutes you need to be playing. You rather and, and we respected it. That's yeah. what I thought. I used to tell my young guys that in New York, would you rather finish or start if I had to give you a choice? And to a man, they would all say, finish. Yeah. Hey, so, yeah. It, you know, I know it's a pride to start, and, and, and eventually you guys did become that starter yeah. and those stars, but there is something to be said about when you can bring your mind down to the right place and say, wait yeah. a minute, if I get to finish these games, who gives a damn, yeah. right? Uh, at yeah, the end totally. of the day, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm putting a stamp on the game. So, you know, it just goes to show how he saw things, you know, and how yeah. he did, like, And get out of individually. You know, that's that's a sacrifice, you know what I'm saying? You sacrifice for your team. You might not have to start. Like how they did, uh, who was that? Andre Iguodala, you know? When Steve Kerr put him on the bench, and look how that just worked out. And you like, you putting an all-star, somebody who's been starting for a <laughs> long time in this league, and it was the best thing that happened to Andre. I feel like it extended his career even longer and he did even more by doing that, you know? And they did more as a group. Like as a group. He, as a he group. ended up helping them win titles yeah. because of taking that sacrifice. Taking that sacrifice. Right and I thought that was very, very dope. You coached a lot of players so far, and you're going to coach many more. But right now, from the players that you didn't coach, whether you was assistant coach, whether you a head coach, if mm -hmm. you could put five players together to be your starting five to coach, out of all them teams, all all them players, out of all them players, who would be that starting five for you? Uh, 
My point guard would be Mike Conley. Mm, okay. And he's the best point guard that I've coached. I love you know? Conley. <laughs> yeah, I could, the only reason I say that, too, is because I got Nick the quick late. Mm-hmm. Like, if we just sure. going off of just – I would probably take Nick because Nick was just an assassin. Mm-hmm, uh, but Nick, by the time I got to him in Golden State, he was on one leg and it was, you know, it was declining. But I ended up hiring Nick because Q wouldn't come to Memphis to coach with me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I would say Mike Conley. I would say D-Wade. Um, shit, Q, you might be in that mix. Um, Bron for sure. Chris Bosh for sure. Um and Mark Gasol. Oh, so Kylie, D Wade, LeBron, Bosch, and Mark Gasol. That's a nice lineup right there. Pretty nice lineup. Yeah. Yeah. And I, <laughs> see, I never got to coach Chris Stapps either. Chris Stapps was already by the time okay. he was traded while while he was hurt for us. So you know right. he would have made that list too if, if you know if he would actually you know stay with us and I'd have got to coach him. But I would say you know. That that five right there with with Q knocking on the door because that it, that group would have needed some balance. <laughs> That's somebody that would have was ready to smack somebody up if they got out of line. Yeah, uh, you know, he just like Anthony Mason. You know, he, uh, <laughs> you gotta have that though. You got to win. You know, I just believe you gotta have a, a gotta guy have that. that's willing to tell you know the the guy that's getting all the damn shots that he wrong. You know, because somebody on the team has to be able to tell him that. And that was the thing with Q, which was awesome, was, you know, although he and D-Wade already had a previous relationship, I don't think it would have mattered. He was willing to tell D-Wade that he was wrong. And that's, yeah. that's an important thing to have on the team because if, if your star is not going to listen to anybody, your culture is probably going to go out the window, you know. <laughs> yeah, and on those know, championship man. teams, as crazy as it sounds, a lot of people don't notice about them. But Chris Bosh was that guy for the championship teams. Chris Bosh would go in on Braun. He would go in on D-Wade. Right. You know, yeah, I think Chris Bosh was averaging 25 and 13 in Toronto. So he gave up a lot. He was killing you know, in Toronto. Oh, he was unstoppable. Come on. <laughs> yeah, let's when I played against him, I was like, boy, I'm looking he at him. I'm like, nah, he a little soft. When I played against him, I said, oh, no, nah, he good, good. <laughs> like, he, can play. <laughs> he can play, man. And, and he gave up a lot to come be a part of that. And so mm-hmm. his, his attitude was, if I'm giving up all these shots and I got to start spotting up from three and I got to switch on pick and rolls and do all that, y'all ain't going to be able to make excuses about when you screwing up either. Mm-hmm. And so CB used to be on them dudes. Everybody thinks CB the soft guy, that's quiet, nice shit. <laughs> CB used to be on their head, man. And, and it made and, – and I always say this, he was the guy who made it work. Mm-hmm. Like he was the glue that really brought that whole thing together and made that whole thing work for us to win the titles when we did. Yeah. So, so tell me this: How was it when you when you touched down as an assistant in, in Atlanta? This is like your you know your first taste of it. You started out you was with Spo in the in the in the video room. I didn't heard many stories about that, but now you know you went back to college and got on the floor and got to really coach a little bit. Then you get your chance with Atlanta. How was that for you? I got – so how it went with Q is I, I, I went to Golden State for one year and before I got to Atlanta. And we got fired at the end of that year. Eric Musselman was mm-hmm. the head coach. And so okay. that year actually really helped me get ready for Atlanta. And uh, after we got fired, um, I didn't know Mike Woodson at all. I didn't know Woody at all. But my buddy that I played college ball with was working in their front office. And he said, hey, I want to introduce you to Woody – 
I think you'd be a good fit for these young kids that we have coming in. So I was just happy to have an opportunity to try to get a job. And, you know, I went to meet Woody in the Salt Lake City Summer League. And after five minutes, we hit it off and he hired me on the spot. Mm. Told me how much I was making, how many years I was getting. I was just like, damn, this is all right. Like, I'm back <laughs> right. at work, you know. And then, but it was challenging. It was a really challenging year because we, we weren't good. You know, we won 13 games that year and we were losing, obviously, on purpose for the most part. And, I, and, and probably my most challenging coaching uh, uh, moment was coaching Josh Smith. And, and coaching Josh Smith as a 17-year-old in his hometown was tough, you know, and, and right. we grew together. Like, we had to go – we went through some battles, man. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'm glad that it happened because he made me a better coach. Like, he made me – and he – I was like you, Q, in a lot of ways when you talk about temper and just, you know, how I'm feisty. And, and so it made me settle into being more of a coach and I had to kind of get away from that. If you'd say something crazy to me, I'm yeah, ready right. to, you know what I mean? Like, I had to lose that. And so, Josh, I had Josh Smith, Josh Childress, uh, the kid named Dante Smith that, that came out of junior college, yeah. and Royal Ivy. They were my four rookies. And then uh, Boris Diaw was in his yeah, second year. Yeah, and they were my responsibility. Young, that, was, that was a young core. Young, yeah, young, 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 young core. And so, uh, for me, it, it ended up being like the perfect introduction into how to develop players, how to connect with guys, you know, how to keep guys' minds in it when they're not playing well or they're not playing at all, you know, like DJ did for you. Uh, you know, and so that, 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 that time for me was, was an awesome time, and we got to see that team grow. The first championship season that y'all had, to actually see a season from starting from training camp to see it unfold and get the ultimate goal at the end. Like, how was that as a coach? Because I don't know how many championships you won, but I, I haven't won many in my time. But especially on the level of that, just to see what it takes from start of training camp all the way to that last shot, that buzzer, when that time go off. How was it to see a whole season and be a part of that and go to a championship? It was, it was amazing, uh, D, but I tell you, it started in the year that we lost. You know, the we, year before? I, Y'all got everybody? Before, we, we, we went to the end and played against Dallas and lost. And mm. that had a lot to do with us winning the next two. Uh, because, one, the pain is just misery. I mean, you know, when I, I'm just, I can't even explain the pain of getting all the way to the end and falling short. It's mm-hmm. just like, it, it's really a... a one of the most miserable feelings I've ever felt in my life next to losing a loved one. And so the next year coming in, it was a lockout and which made it even more pain. Cause we was all like, we got to get back. Like mm-hmm. it's we, we coming back and to see how that team hit the ground running and just to see their level of commitment and their willing to sacrifice. And I've told the story a lot, but I just really believe it was the key to us taking the next step. It was, you know, D Wade, you know, came to me uh, before practice one day and was like, listen, I'm going to tell this dude that it's his team because he obviously doesn't see that it is his. And so I think he needs to hear it from me because he's he's giving me too much respect. He's Mm -hmm. like, this dude's the best player in the world. He's got it. This is his now. Mm -hmm. And so I said, hey, lay it on him. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it'll help him. And sure enough, Bron comes in the gym. We're shooting free throws. It's just us three in the gym. 
and uh, and, and D-Wade kind of looks at me, and he, LeBron shoots, and he holds the ball, and he goes, man, this is yours. And LeBron kind of looked at him like he didn't know what he was talking about at first, and he was like, LeBron, this is your team. He was like, I'm here to help you now. He was like, yeah. And, he, you know, D always clowning. He was like, yes, this is always going to be Wade County. Don't forget him. Right. <laughs> so, you know, right. this, this is Wade County, he said. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, for the rest of the time we here together, this is your team. And I'm going to follow you and I'm going to support you. And it was like you could just see it like a weight was taken off of Bron. And that year, if you go back and watch some of the games he had, he exploded. It was like mm-hmm. you finally saw him playing with a, a free mind because you, mm-hmm. you, you all have seen him play with a heavy mind, with, yeah. a, with a clouded brain, and always yeah. wondering, like, if I don't win and what's going to happen if I mm-hmm. don't succeed. And mm-hmm. he finally let all of that go, and I really believe that conversation that day was the key to everything. And when he did that, and I think that year, too, uh, uh, Chris Bosh got hurt. And we had to start playing Shane Battier at the four because mm-hmm. uh, it was his best position. But we kept force feeding him at the three. Mm-hmm. And at that point in Shane's career, the three was gone. Like it was mm-hmm. time for him to become that space four. And so by mm-hmm. doing that, we got our smartest players on the court. We moved CB to the five. And we it just like our whole team exploded that year. So to see the evolution mm-hmm. from start to finish of how things took place for us to get to that point, uh, it was it was something I'll never forget, and and like I always tell people this, like, yeah, we give you, we coach you guys, and we try to teach you everything we know and and all of that. But I'm telling you, you guys teach us more than we teach you, because mm-hmm. most of the decisions we make and most of the things we come up with as coaches are things that we're getting because we're watching how you play, yeah, and how you respond and how you react and how you execute. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's your strengths and what's your weaknesses. And so we ended up, we ended up learning a lot more from y'all. And so, you know, that team ended up teaching us so much and we just ended up figuring out. And the biggest thing I think, you know, ultimately to our success was, was Spo. Mm-hmm. Spo, you know, from a technical standpoint, from a tactician standpoint, you know, let go of the old heat ways and, and just saying, Hey, this is how we're going to do it. And this is it. Because the heat, we never switched. We wouldn't switch right. anything. Like, that was the easy way out back in the day, right? Um, offensively, we always ran our big into the strong side post mm-hmm. in the early offense. Well, those two things, Spo got away from. Spo mm-hmm. said, nope, we got to keep that block open, and we yeah. got to give E and Bron all the space in the world Stay to neat. attack. And, uh, and defensively, we got all of these guys that's between 6'5 and 7 feet that's athletic, let's start switching. Switch everything. And that ended up suffocating. <laughs> yeah, we ended up suffocating people. And that's why I said Chris Bosch was so important. And Shane at the four was so important because they were smart and they could do the job of switching and containing guards. And so that ended up springboarding us to the finals. And then I just I just knew it didn't matter who we was going to play that year. Like, we was gonna we was gonna win that yeah, year, yeah. and it just happened to be <laughs> like, okay, young, young, young KD and young Russell yeah. and a young James Harden. Uh, I talk about that all the time. The fact like how huge that was for somebody like D Wade, because you know I was there obviously the year before they they you know joined up, and yeah. you coaching them, you saw how you know they were they were highly competitive against each other, and you know they same draft class and all this, and every time they played, yeah. they going to war trying to beat each other. So for D-Wade to say, okay, sit back and say, I'm going to bring this guy who I know 
once he get here, it's going to basically be his thing. And for him to be that selfless and unselfish to make that act and then to go further after, like with the story you just told, to sit there and, and lay it down when he see it's not going the way it should be to have the, you know, awareness to say, look, man, this is this is what it is. And have the, like I said, again, the unselfishness to say, I'm handing you the keys to my Bentley and no I'm saying doubt. it's yours. You know what I'm saying? I've given no you the doubt. keys to my whip and my car and saying, here. That's like that was huge, and for you to you know say that story like that, that definitely highlights that it wouldn't have worked without him doing that. No doubt, and and when you was there, D Way arguably was the MVP of the league. He led the league. That's in that's that that's that's he, what I'm saying. Like yeah. to see them, and be, he, he outplayed Brom most times that what they went head up, which mm-hmm. was they, great. That, that that's time. my that's that's my point. And and so you're exactly right. Like for him to check his ego, and and to be able to say because D. You know, and it, what it told me was D was much more about winning than personal stuff. That's when mm-hmm. it really, really hit me that it, winning was the most important thing to him. And his legacy as a winner was more important to him than having stats or being the man or all of this other stuff. Um, you know, just by him making, doing those little acts that no one really got to see, but we got to witness it on a daily basis. Um, it would have never worked if he didn't take that step back. Um, and, and at least just just verbalize it to LeBron. Now, playing wise, D was still that same dude. He was a killer. Oh, he trust was me, killing people. He was he was he was putting on shows a lot of nights. But he just understood that Bron needed to hear that from him to really understand that he don't have to look over his shoulder no more and wonder if if, if he shoots this pull up three on the break. Yeah, it's deep. You know, or and the, any of that, you know. Yeah. And the, and the, the other thing I laughed at a lot, because, you know, me, I, I had just been there. So I knew certain things about, you know, at least the guys that were there when I was there in the, in the organi- from an organizational standpoint. So I would be laughing when they would be, you know, like you said, the first year or so it was a struggle. And there would be all these rumors like, they gonna, is they going to fire Spo to Spo? I'm like, y'all tripping. I'm like, y'all tripping. Like, they don't even know it. They don't even know what it is right now. Like, now, obviously, years later, in hindsight, they see how great of a coach. But I knew. Because, like, you saw how me and that was what I always respected about Spo. He didn't. He didn't. He wasn't a coach who shied away from anything. He didn't uh-uh. care about conflict. He didn't care about dialogue. He had an open door. Like you got an opinion, I'm gonna listen, and then I'm not gonna disrespect you. But if I don't agree with it, I'm gonna go back, and I don't care about getting fired. Like you know, Fizz, we used to. Me and Spo used to get into it. It was, but it was always it was always respect when he knew that I was all about winning. So he respected me in that statement. He he allowed me to do what I did. Yep, and that's where Spo, you know, he he had a special temperament, and I really learned from him. Uh, I, I, that was one of the few things I learned from him. But <laughs> Spo, Spo was the kind of guy who was was just about can we get to the right answer? He didn't care whose answer it was. Right. It wasn't about me, 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 and he didn't even. If he could have never did an interview on camera, he would have been happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's how Spo was. But he was about you know let's get to the right answer. What's best for the group? And so he knew it was going to be days where a player had an opinion about how we should do something or a player was going to have a certain energy or passion towards him that they was going to have to go at it a little bit. And he would be able to deal with that. But then, you know, once it was all done, he'd go, Fizz, go talk to Q. (laughs) When it was over with, make sure everything good. And it got to a point where he didn't even have to do that with you guys anymore because you guys had built such a, a, a trust that he knew it was over in that moment. He knew, like, okay, me and Q disagreed. We may have even yelled at each other a little bit. 
that's done now. We got to go win the game, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing, like, and I think that was, you know, for LeBron, it was good for LeBron because, you know, LeBron had to hear the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, he had to he had to conform to the heat way and we couldn't bend to his way. And mm-hmm. and it was, that was really important yeah. um, that he had that Spo was there for him. You know, even though we lost that first year, it was little stuff that would take place that was really cool. Like I remember LeBron was hot about something, you know, that was kind of counter to our culture. Something I don't know if it was some guys he wanted to come in the locker room or. I forgot what it was because, you know, we didn't let nobody in the building. So so it was something like that. And I just remember walking through the locker room and LeBron was saying something. He was talking to a couple guys and the locker room was empty. It was just UD and D-Wade. And both of them, as I was passing through, both go, nah, bruh, nah, we don't do it like that here. Mm. This is our space. You want to hang out with them, you do it over there. Mm. But this is how we do it here. When we come Mm -hmm. here, this is just for us. And you know UD, like yeah. it's it's all hood there. So it was yeah, like right. when he finally speak up. That's it. Like you know, and UD yeah. is UD bleeds the culture. Like yeah, UD, exactly. UD is the black and red. He is if you want a a, a, a picture of a guy and the definition of of heat, yeah. it's Donis Haslam. And so yeah. you know when Bron started to see, wait a minute. So Pat's telling me this. Spoh's telling me this, and now my D-Wade my man UD Wade UD is telling me this. I ain't got nowhere to go. I got to buy into this. And so yeah. I really think that that's why Miami was the absolute best place for him to go get his college education because he needed people that were going that was going to say no to him to really get him to understand what winning was. And mm-hmm. once he got those 4 years of college in with us, he took it back to Cleveland and you saw he ended up winning it there. But but yeah, he had that, a that, ending now of what were non-negotiable. Yeah, and that was something that I could see. I could visibly see that at those different points of the season. And then still knowing different guys and talking to different guys, I could tell. But I, I it was like you said, it was like I knew that the culture wasn't gonna bend. Uh-uh. They weren't gonna I already knew what it was. And I was like, this is gonna be interesting to see. Yeah. And so like you like you say, at them different little points of the year. But like I said, that was that was one of the things that I that that, that why I respect this post so much. Like, you know what I'm saying? I, I saw that from day one. Like we had J O who was a dominant personality. Yep. He didn't back down to J O. He treated J O D Way. He treated everybody the same. And it was like when you when when you know as players, when we see that, we can me as a player, I always identified and respected and, and I was attracted and drawn to uh, that. Yeah. And so when I saw that, that was like, okay, no, nah, I can I can rock with this dude. And like to this day, you. like I, I I had a I had a great relationship with Spo. We built a great I still talk to him, talk to him on Father's Day and different days. And like one of my favorite coaches that I ever played for, and I only played one year, one year. He feels the same way about you. I swear to God. Okay. I can't tell you how many times he'll bring your name up in just random conversations where because one our, you know for us the, the thing that we respected most out of you was how you came in in the summer and gave yourself over to the program like yeah. he was like look it ain't been going great where I was at <clears throat> you know I need to kind of reboot myself you know a lot of dudes won't t- again check your ego you had already mm-hmm. had a great career but you said you know what I got to get back into a place that's going to get me right Mm, and yeah. you committed yourself to this t- to Miami in the summer, and it was hot as hell. And I remember Days Q running wall to wall, and when he was Growing done, up. he run over to the trash can and put Throw his head whole head in that jaw. You tell us that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was there watching it. Trust right. me. And then he get back up. 
he get back on the line, go again. I don't sh- how many how much weight did you lose that summer? I mean, you was well, I lost forty seven pounds in five weeks. Think That's about crazy. that, and like and like eleven percent body fat. It was crazy. It was, That's but crazy. it was awesome to watch the commitment on his end to come in every single day and put himself through that. And we was there every day with him. It was like I said, when I tell you me and Q was together every single day, we was together Mm. every single day, whether it was going to eat, whether it was in the gym, it didn't matter. We was together. Mm. Like it was Mm. like watching hoop. We was doing something together during that day. And I just watched him and and you ended up getting a three year deal after that. When everybody was supposedly saying that you, you weren't, you weren't, you were done and all Mm. of this other stuff. You ended up getting a three year contract with Orlando, right? I think yeah. it was Orlando. So, it, you know, yeah. it just goes to show you, you know, one, it was, a, it was, it, it reflects on your character, but I really think you and Spo connected through that work and through that, through commitment and preparation. And, you know, that's Spo's DNA. You know, mm-hmm. Spo always yeah. say, maybe I ain't the, the X's and O's guy or this guy or this guy. He was like, but I'm going to prepare. I'm going to outwork you. Like, I remember him telling the, the team in the finals, this is the coolest thing. He said, uh, we were playing the Spurs. And uh, we were down one game to him the year we beat him. And uh, we're going to do our film in San Antonio. And uh, he goes, you know what, fellas? He goes, we've been trying to trying to beat Bobby Fisher at chess. He was like, we're not going to beat Bobby Fisher at chess. He was like, <laughs> we're going to slap that effing chessboard off the table and we're going to make this a UFC fight. And that's what it turned into. We just said yeah. we can't beat the Spurs at chess. That's not they. They these dudes are passing right. without looking. Getting the, we said we got to make this a brawl. And yeah. It was supposed saying we're gonna make this cage fight. We're gonna stop trying to play chess. We're gonna make this a cage fight, and it changed that's the whole get, series. That's me yeah. getting that, vigorous. That was looking that. at you, pulling the coat. Yes, me looking. <laughs> and, it, and for me, you know, for me, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, but, you know, I got to I, – I was lucky enough when we was – I was 23 when I met Spo. Spo was 25, and we was working in the video room as the bottom-of-the-barrel guys. And so right. what is – you know, for me to be brought back there 12 years later by this guy when he gets his head coaching gig, and then for us to be able to go on and do everything that we did together, you know, I, I just got so much respect for him and our friendship and just what he's done for me as a person and, and mm. just as a coach. Like, he, he's added probably more to me than any one person uh, in my basketball life. A brother for life. A brother for life. I, I, I've said it just like I yeah. told you, uh, Fizz, when, when you called, like, when, when, when I went to work for Stan. It was only – it's only a handful of people that I would have went – and, and and like even now with me being away from coaching and stuff like that, I'll never say never. But like Spo was somebody who, when he called and he was calling, you, you remember when I when you called me when you got to Memphis and I was like, Fizz, you know you my dog. I was like, but <laughs> I just can't do it. I was like, I'm not. I can't leave right now. I gotta be. Home. It yeah, it wasn't so. And it was the same thing with Spo. Like when you told me, because I was laughing. You called me after I had got the job with uh with with Stan in Detroit. Yep. And you was like, dude. You was like Spo losing his mind right now. I was like, what you mean? <laughs> you was like, you was like, he didn't. Then Spo called me. He was like, dude, I had no. I was like, I didn't have the idea that I was about to be coaching and stuff like the, that. So oh, it was like, he was hot. He was hot. He was like, Stan stole my guy. He stole my guy. <laughs> and it's funny because like, and, and I don't know what it is, but you know, he and I both, we, we, we. It's just this weird thing with you Chicago cats. We just, we bond with y'all for some yeah. reason. Like, Juwan, 
you, yeah. Tony, yeah, like I, I got such close relationships with all of you dudes out of Chicago. It's just very few times that a dude comes out of there where I'm like, I don't like him. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, Juwan Howard is a dude that if he called hey, me at four in the no, morning, whatever he no, is on no. the <laughs> Look, I am there. I am yeah. there. You know, same with hey, you. That's the OG. Like, uh, and here's the funny thing. This is so. This is what's funny now is, so we moved to L.A. and we were living in Sherman Oaks for a little bit. D-Way lives five minutes up the road, him and Gabby. This is, uh -huh. this is just real. They move out here to where we are now. <laughs> My wife goes, you ready to buy a place? I'm like, yeah, let's just do it. Let's just pull the trigger and buy a place. We live an exit away from him now. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm like Dude, we can't get away from each other. Can't even get away from each other. But it's cool because it's like it's like with Q, it's like it's very few people I can actually sit around with and just be with them and – you know, they don't want nothing from me. I don't want nothing from them. them. It's just love. Enjoy and we the like time. the same stuff and we laugh at the same stuff. And and, and that's D-Wade for me. Like, he he's just my – that's my dude. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so for him to be this close to me, you know, and, and me being so close to his kids and, like, Gab. I, Gab, Gab, we used to play against her high school. I knew Gab when she was right. 16, 17 years old. Yeah. So it's oh, just so much love. <laughs> oh, I, mean, we, I knew Gab way before I knew D. Oh, when that's crazy. Day, Gab came up to me and hugged me, and he like, how you know him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, this is my brother. Like, yeah. you know, like, we've been together since we was kids, you know. And so for us now to be neighbors, basically, you know, his house is obviously a lot bigger than mine, but we are neighbors <laughs> for, the most, <laughs> for the most part. But it's really cool. And you Chicago cats is always like, I always got love for y'all. They, uh, I want you to speak up on, like, how proud – this is one of my favorite players ever. I'm so proud of this dude. Like, how proud are you of Udonis Haslam to see, like, his whole career, how he's, like, Mr. Miami. He's still Wade County, but, like, the mayor, he the mayor of the joint. That's his nickname. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm, so, I'm so proud of Udonis Haslam, the man he become, uh, his body. Remember, he was the little chubby kid with the braids. Like, just who he is now. Like, just speak up on Udonis because, you know, we got a big respect for Udonis yeah, and, and like, sure, what man. he do and what he bring to the table. He, he you know, it's certain dudes that you could put in the room together and, and it's going to be okay. And he's one of them dudes, you know, if you're a tough dude and you're about the real stuff, you can be in the room with him. You know, I, I think about his comment when they got Jimmy Butler. Where he said he was he he, he what you going what, what do you want him to do when you put a dog in a room full of cats? He gonna eat the cats. But you <laughs> yeah. brought him to a place now. He in a room full of dogs. They all gonna run as a pack. Yeah. And it's true. And that's and, and he gonna test you. He gonna make sure that you a dog so that you can be in that room with him. And you know to watch him as a man evolve into this incredible businessman and this community leader. And, and, and this guy who now is really he, he he's leading the front, you know, from the front on a lot of social issues in Miami right now uh, in a way that you can't you can't mm -hmm. help but to respect it. Mm -hmm. um, you see his body of work. You know, the type of guy he is. He isn't a guy that was blessed with the right. super hops or the pure jump shot or all of this stuff. He wasn't drafted. You know, he, he, he basically was a right. walk on in the league yeah. and he took his spot in the league. And now here he is still in the, the NBA locker room. I think he got right a, I think he's going to be like 60. He's going to be like man. 60 and he's going to be like the 15th man. Still, man. Still ready to he's put a L on somebody. Man. 
<laughs> you can put him in the game right now. It's just that they got a young team and a lot of, you know, they're young, talented, and all of that stuff. But if somebody went down and they needed UD to play minutes, UD would fill in right away and be – and he was a huge part of us winning. Like, yeah. he had games where he's against Indiana and different people mm-hmm. where he saved us. Yeah. But we thought, damn, this might – this is on the brink. Like, we might get knocked off right now. Mm-hmm. Udonis was the dude that was coming through saving us, you know, yeah. or, or he was the guy sending that message. Like, he's – He's a he's a uh, the last of a dying breed. He's the dude mm-hmm. that when when Tyler Hansbro busted D Wade's head, two plays later Hansbro came exactly. down and Udonis busted his head. Yeah, right. And 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 there ain't mm-hmm. many of those dudes left that's gonna go out there yeah, and, right. and keep it real. And so, you know, I just think that you know personally for me, who he is, you know, it's a lot like my relationship with Q. Like, you know, UD can be anywhere in this world. Yeah. You know, and, and and if he called and said, Fizz, I need you. He's needs you. Be there. And mm-hmm. and it's been here's the crazy part. I've had moments and run-ins in Miami where I thought, you know what? It's about to go down. Like I'm I'm really about to be in something. Right away. Let me call you D. It was over. <laughs> it was over. That's how right tied away. in how respected he is in Miami is that somebody messing with you. That's gonna be a yeah. that, that's gonna be over quick, and yeah, he would yeah. be there for you whenever you called him he in a moment's notice. Like it was like automatic. Like you didn't have to ask twice for him. You yes. know what I mean? And so that's that guy. And, just, and you knew, you know what you did? Like you always gonna get the truth. I just like always. guys. I love guys that that, and I respect guys that that you may not like what I'm gonna say to you, but it's gonna be the truth because I love you. And I'm gonna look you dead in your face and say it. Yeah, and he and it was just like he was raw, and we had raw conversations. I remember Mm -hmm. one night, you know, he wasn't happy about his role on the team, and me, him, Pat, and Spo sat up in the office until like three in the morning after a game, going back and forth, back and forth, and we all said the real stuff to each other face to face. And by the end of it, we was all teary eyed and like, but it was real, and we just hugged each other. And he looked at us and he said, "Y'all know." If y'all was caught up in the alley somewhere at three in the morning, I'd be there. And we and none of us had a doubt of what he was saying. And, yeah. and so it, it you know, it's a reason you guys like you respect guy a guy like you, Donis, because you guys have cut from that same cloth. You come from yeah. that same element. You know, you was tested as a kid where you grew up in the most harshest conditions and you made it out of that uh to thrive. You know, and Udonis came from Liberty City. Like yeah. And he, if he watches, he gonna hate that I'm calling him Udonis. He don't like when people call him. But I like to say it just to piss him off. And uh, but but he comes from Liberty City, man. And y'all know that that's one of the toughest areas uh, in the country. And mm-hmm. so for him to become the man he is, the leader that he's become, and and the thriving businessman, it just it, it I can't say pride because it, it it was it implicated that I had something to do with it. But I just it makes me happy on the inside yep. to see yep. a dude like that win. All right, so so you spoke about you know finally leaving the nest and and um, leaving Miami. How was that for you leaving and 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 getting you know achieving the dream? Obviously, being you you got to be the head coach in the NBA. And, and how was that you know your first experience as a head coach in, in Memphis? Yeah. Oh uh, shit. Uh, it was it was it was it was uh it was scary to be honest with you. <laughs> Nerve wracking because I didn't have that yeah. security blanket no more. You know, it was mm-hmm. all on me to make these decisions. And, uh, you know, I knew I was coming to a super veteran team that had already had success. You know, Mike, 
Conley, Marcus All, Zebo, who another dude that fit into that cloth yeah. that we always talk about. Uh, and Tony Allen, another dude Tony. that fit into that cloth. <laughs> and so I knew that I, you know, everybody was worried about is if could I coach Zebo and Tony? And I knew that that was already done. You yeah. know, Zebo hang out with my boys here in the neighborhood in LA. So I knew that that was a <laughs> done deal. You know, me and yeah. Zebo had a great relationship. And then going back to the whole Chicago thing, I knew Tony Allen and I was going to click on all cylinders. You know, it got to a point that I was playing Tony too many minutes. He came in, he was like, Coach, my knee, man, I, you, you playing me more right. minutes than I played in three years. He was like, <laughs> you got to – I said, damn, Tony, I didn't know I was going to have a player come in and tell me I'm playing him too much. <laughs> he was like, oh, he was like, save me for the end, Coach. Save me. So I knew that that was going – that was – that part was going to be taken care of. And so it was just a matter of how do I get – you know, the toughest decision for me was how do I get Mike Conley to become what he could really be without losing Mark Gasol's special talent and mm -hmm. even evolving him into being more. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and at the same time, I have to bring – I got to bring this culture that I know, you know, genuinely bring it. It can't be me repeating just phrases and words from the yeah. heat, but it has to be something that's genuine to me but at the same time respecting the grit and grind yeah. culture that they had already built. So it was a real delicate walk on mm -hmm. how to make it all work together. And, uh, you know, it wasn't always smooth, but those dudes, they played hard. They competed hard for me. Um, you know, I think the toughest thing that year for us was, you know, we ended up signing Chandler Parsons uh, to a big contract, and right. I couldn't get him on the court. Yeah, And that was the missing piece for us. If we would have had that big wing like you, D-Miles, like a big swing three-man that can do, play basically point from the three, that would have opened our team up. We would have been deadly then. And, uh, but we still ended up being a, a really good team. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mark evolved into this big-time three-point shooter. Mike Conley averaged 22 a night for me after averaging 15, 16 a night, you know, his career. And, and obviously, and here was the, the biggest key to it. You know, you talk about sacrifices. Zebo, I went to Zebo, and, and these are the hard conversations you got to have with guys. You know, and you can't be afraid to have these talks with them. But I brought Zebo into the office after the pre after preseason, and I said, you know, I said Zebo, I think the best thing for you and for us is for you to come off the bench. Yeah. And I said, I know you have never done that. I said, but listen to me, listen to my reasoning before you give me your answer. Yeah, I said. You're going to get the same amount of touches. I'm going to move you to the five. So you're going to be playing against slower guys. Slower guys. Yeah. And I'm going to be bringing you off the bench. So you're not even playing against starting the, the starting fives. Yeah. I said, let's make it a goal that you are six man of the year this year. Mm -hmm. And Zebo looked at me. He said, coach, you right. have to explain all that, man. He said, I'm with you. Right. He was like, I'm with you. <laughs> That's both. Zebo came into my office one game. We lost to Portland and it was late and I didn't have him in the game because I wanted to be able to switch more. And Zebo came in and he said, coach, I know I'm not great with switching and all of that. He said, but I'll make sure we win games at the end. He was like, I want to finish games. Mm -hmm. I said, Zebo, we shook hands on it. Mm -hmm. From that point on, the only conversations was laughter with Zebo. He would come yeah. in, he'd be having shoes untied, walking around <laughs> like he had bad feet. Then I'd yell, I'd yell over to across the gym, your ass is still practicing. <laughs> he like, I know, I know. And he laced them up. And then, you know, we got into the playoffs and uh, we played the Spurs that year. 
and we had lost the first two games bringing him off the bench and I, he came to the back of the plane and sat with me we started watching film and i just looked at him and i said you know you starting the next game right and he was like whatever you want coach mm -hmm. i ended up starting them we won we tied the series two to two um you know obviously we ended up losing the series but he was just you're talking about a joy to coach yeah. man he made my life so easy but it was it was scary going into that you know environment you know, knowing that they had already had something there, you know, that was established, you know, even though it was on the tail end, it mm -hmm. was still a lot of pride in that. And the city was behind that and the city yeah. reflected that. And I couldn't come in there right. just being Mr. Heat and mm -hmm. this is going to do this and this. So I still had to embrace what they had already established. And so it was good for me to have to go through that and learn from that. And, and, and it made me a better coach because of it. Tell me about how was that for you, your experience being a head coach of the New York Knicks and the Mecca. How was that for you? Yeah. I remember I remember I remember calling garden. you and telling you congrats <laughs> and just being like, you know, like congrats, bro. It was uh for me it, Get ready. it was like I uh again, when you a basketball historian and enthusiast, like to get that job was just like a dream for me. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm following the footsteps of my mentor, Pat Riley, and, and you know, the Clyde Frazier's and, and all. It was just like it was it was mind-blowing. And, you know, what that meant to my mom, who was a, a basketball junkie in her own right, you know, and to be able to bring her to that press conference in Madison Square Garden. And, you know, that it was it was, it was something I'll never forget. And, and, and although it didn't go the way I would have wanted it to go, I wouldn't have done it any different. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded that experience uh, – to say that I did that and was a part of that uh, for nothing, you know, like it was, you know, Q, you played in there and it's just like you, both you guys, when you went in there as an opposing player, it was like, I got a ball. Like you look around right. front row and you like, they go Spike and they go Adam Sandler <laughs> and they go, you know, Tracy Morgan. And like, you just, I got, right. I got a hoop. Like I got, a, I got a ball. Mm, and, and, you know, my thing was it, for me, it was kind of like, if I couldn't be the head coach of the Lakers or the Celtics, it had to be the Knicks. So when that opportunity came, you know, I, as crazy as it was, I was lucky enough to have like five teams that was really serious about me, you know, during that time. Yeah. And uh, it was just like, man, I, I, I'm a wrong hitter. I'm going for the, I'm going for the fifth. I got so like, I'm swinging. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I can't go with the same base hit on this one. Like, <laughs> And I, yeah, and I yeah, used to might be the, the white way of it. The white way. It was a tough job. Like it was no doubt about it. It was a difficult job. A lot of people yeah, had, of had crashed and burned. And you know, I knew I was taking on a monster. And so you know, I have I, I mentally prepared myself for it and just said, you know what, whatever comes my way, whether it's the media killing me or you know, you know, ex players or, or or whatever, the fans like. Deal with it. Like, you, you've been through harder stuff than this. You know, the bottom line is you standing right, in, the, yeah. in the garden getting mm -hmm. to coach every single night. And, you know, for the most part is even though we stunk, yeah. I had incredible support from the fans. Like, unbelievable support. You know, you got a couple of dudes here and there that might send your wife a tweet or something or something crazy like that. But at the end of the day, man, every time I walked in that arena, man, fans was like 100 because I always was honest with the fan base. Like, I didn't uh, try to sugarcoat stuff. I never blamed the players for what was going on around us. Like, I always just told it how it was, and I think New York fans appreciated that, like, that I wasn't there bullshitting them. I was there just trying to give them, this, you know, the deal. 
you know, ultimately we just didn't win enough games. And, and you know, as a coach, I take ownership of that. You know, that's I ain't putting right. that on my players. I take ownership of that. And so if they had the decision that to change me out, yeah, so be it. But I wasn't putting it on the front office and I wasn't putting it on the players or the owner and all of that other stuff that other people want to do and make it about. And I appreciate people having my back. But at the end of the day, I'm the coach. And I take mm-hmm. ownership for what how that team performs. And my team wasn't performing at a high enough level uh, at the rate that the team wanted it to play at. So, you know, I'm grateful that they gave me the opportunity. I'm just hoping that I didn't lose so many games that I don't get to sit in that seat again because I really felt like I can do it. You know, I, and I, Memphis, <laughs> I proved that I can do it. Yeah. And uh, I just want that opportunity again because I just learned – after that situation, I learned so much more that I think I got a lot to give to the next job that I get. Now, if I can get the, just the right pieces in place, boy, I'm a, let me get some – let me get a bunch of y'all running around out there and, <laughs> and, and, and then see what happens. When I get me uh, some junkyard dogs, it, 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 a whole team full of them, and, and see what happens. <laughs> I had some puppies in New York. They wouldn't they – wouldn't, Junkyard dogs yet, but I had some good young yeah. pieces. I'm telling you, the kid Mitchell Robinson, uh, Kevin Knox, and R.J. Barrett, those kids are going to end up being players in this league. They're just babies, though. Like, you know, this league is yeah. yeah. like Sometimes it takes time. Yeah. Everybody don't just come fall in the dough just killing. Sometimes, look at you got to look at guys like Chauncey. It took five a minute, and, and he was special, it though. It took a, it, yeah, and he was special, he was special. though, once it went. Yeah, so – so you can't, you know, lay down on none of those uh, guys. So they gonna, they got. I think they're in a good position to, to 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 do something well. You know, hopefully they hired a guy that can can get them over the hump. And you know, again, it's gonna come back to that culture. Can everybody stay tight and, and hold strong when when media starts poking at it, or or agents start poking at it, or whoever you know, fan base starts mm-hmm. booing somebody. It's like that's when you gotta hold tight and, and really stick together. And so, you know, I know Leon Rose well. He's a, he's a good dude. He's smart as hell. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, he's got his hands full, but that's the challenge you want. You don't want it. You don't want to just hand it to you. Right. You want to at least work for right. some of that and, and, and have to earn it. And so I think they got a good thing going over there and I'm rooting for them. With everything that's going on in the world, you know, now so many athletes want to do so much more. What's some of the ideas or some of the thoughts that you had come across your head of what athletes can do? Because they talking about putting certain things, names on the back of the jerseys. But people don't really know what to do. Like, even with us, we don't – you can talk about it, but now it's at a point where you, you don't want to just talk. You want to actually yeah. physically just be doing something. It starts with educating yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's where, you know, all of us are outraged, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and let's be real, all three of us have watched this – shit go on our whole lives and have been victims of this shit our whole lives. It didn't matter if you play in the league or if you got money or you so-called made it. If the police pulled you over, you was nervous and they was going to treat you famous when you were in the hood broke. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's outrageous to yeah. see this still going on, what happened to George Floyd and all of these other guys uh, along the way and, and women. And so I think the key is if mm-hmm. you really want to impact change is you have to take the time to educate yourself on what changes things. What's going to change stuff is when players actively get involved with getting people out to vote right. and actively get to their communities change and educate people on how to register to vote, how to, how to do absentee voting, 
how to where where they can go to do early voting. Uh, you know, and not where just the, where voting, but but mm-hmm. being being educated on who you voting for, who, who are, are the these candidates? candidates, what are they who, trying to do yes. in your community, not just going and clicking the name. Like that's Absolutely. the key. And you got to know, and, and so that's why I think athletes can can mat, can really use their platform in a in a real substantial way. Is through first them educating themselves yeah. on this stuff, but then taking that education back to their communities. And, edu- and taking that time to educate their community because the community's going to listen. Y'all know that. Every time you went back home and did an event or anything like that, the whole hood showed up. Yep. So if you say this is what we're doing, they're going to do it. And we, we have to acknowledge our history. What has happened before this? The only way you heal is if you acknowledge, right? And, and I, I've learned that in marriage. Like, I, I do something to hurt my wife's feelings, if I keep moving on through my day like nothing's happened and keep moving on, that pain is still yeah. going to be there and you ain't moving forward. And she's going to yeah. somehow, somewhere, right? <laughs> uh, you have to acknowledge <laughs> yeah. the pain as a, as a community first. And, and that's why, again, we talk about the heat. You, you see some of Spo's quotes and some of UD's quotes. A lot of it is about reflection on what happened in Miami in the past. Because mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't acknowledge that, how can you fix what's moving forward? Forward, yeah. So you got to educate yourself on your history, on, on what's happened and where you're from. You got to educate yourself on law. You got to educate yourself on voting. And then once you have that that knowledge, take that big platform that all these guys have now and spread that knowledge, mm-hmm. spread that education, inspire people to get active, inspire people to get involved. And, and the cool part about this generation right now is they don't need a lot of motivation. At all. Yeah, they, they active. need direction. Yeah, they right? active. Yep. They need guidance. Yeah. You know, we don't have, we don't necessarily have a Dr. King right now of this generation that's just funneling the movement, a Malcolm X that's just funneling the movement. Right. Uh, you know, we yeah. got a lot of leaders here and there and people that's doing stuff, and it's not to knock the leadership, but because the world is 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 so big now because of social media athletes now are starting to take those kind of seats and they have to understand the power of that platform. And I really believe through education, uh, changes could really, really start to shift what's going on. Otherwise it's just going to stay the same. Like you can see even right now, the Senate is BSing on passing any kind of police form now, but police form now they're trying to just sugarcoat around the edges and and come up with something that's going to pacify us. But at the end of the day, that's not going to get nothing done. These cops is gonna feel like they empowered to treat us anyway, like treat us like animals, you know. And if you look at that scene, that dude kneeling on his neck. If anybody know, if if you grew up being a hunter or you went hunting with your grandpops or your dad or whoever, that's, a, that's the hunting picture. That's what they do on the deer. And that man kneeled on his neck like he was a dead deer, like he was taking his picture yeah. while people was and people he knew he was being video recorded. The arrogant look on his face sums it up. Like, Set I know you doing me. this, and then I don't care, and you can't do nothing about it, and I'm not scared that you're doing it. I'm not going to stop. I'm not changing it up and making it look like him. I'm not doing this. I'm doing exactly what I'm doing, and I don't care that you got a camera. The last time I seen yeah. that look cute, I was on safari in Africa with my wife, and I saw a lion kill a hyena. And lions don't kill hyenas for food. They kill hyenas to let them know you ain't welcome around here. And I watched this lion yeah. just stare at everybody taking pictures. All these jeeps was around taking pictures. And this lion held this hyena in his mouth and he just stood and looked. Right. Mm-hmm. And this could be you. Like it was that kind of look. And this could be you if you ain't careful. 
And so, you know, I, I, I like that everybody's starting to speak out and all of these people are, are, are trying to, to figure out a way to get involved. But the, the number one thing we got to do is educate ourselves, educate our communities, and then actively get people moving into voting. They got to become participants in the voting process or we're going to keep getting the same bullshit leaders. Right. Let me let me ask you this. Right. So, you know, with the with the with with the NBA restarting and all of that and you hearing all of the talk and the back and forth about, you know, whether they should play and whether this is an opportunity to use the platform or is this a is this like something or a distraction? Like, what's your take on it? I feel like they can really make a difference. What's your opinion on yeah. that? Is it, a, is it an opportunity or a distraction? No, I think it's a total opportunity. I think because you got so many players that this this has happened to them throughout their lives. The league is 77% African-American, right? So most of these players have either experienced this or know somebody that has experienced this type of stuff. And so, one, I think that the, the commissioner is the best in the business, and he's going to make sure that he's going to create a, the safest possible environment uh, for these guys. Like, that's just – I just know that. He's going to create that bubble for them. Not to say that somebody won't get COVID or whatever. Right. At the same time, I just think he's going to create the absolute safest possible environment for them to, to do this. But, but two, I think that this is an incredible opportunity for, uh, for players to truly get the message out on the things that need to be changed and how they should be changed. You know, the same thing we was just talking about. I think the messaging is great, but then I think it's going to be the dialogue that we see take place, the, the interview processes. Um, you know, some of the team meetings we may be involved in and allowed to see in, because I really think the league is going to be a little more dynamic in, in access now, because you're not going to get to go to the games. They're going to be real. They're going to do some cool stuff to where you get to see different things taking place that the normal fan probably don't normally get to see. Right. <laughs> yeah, because they don't got to worry about the crowd no more. They got to just concentrate on the Yeah, and I just think that um, the whole league is behind this movement. Yeah, right? This isn't like, you know, how the NFL was, you know, when Cap first kneeled. And I don't even know if they've really evolved past that since, even though he, you know, Roger Goodell came out and did his hostage statement. You know, he looked like a hostage <laughs> out there when he was saying, you know, black. <laughs> right. but, 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 but we know for a fact that from the top of our league all the way through that everybody is behind this and, and, and you know, so I think that this is going to be a great opportunity to get the messaging out and, and really just to, to kind of put on display the action steps that everybody's going to take to impact change. I'm part of the committee now with the Coaches Association with, with Pop and Doc Rivers and Steve Kerr and Lloyd Pierce, like J.B. Bickerstaff, and it's a few of us. And, and you know, we, we get together and talk, and then we kind of give the information to the other 30 coaches. And I can tell you from a coaching standpoint, we are lit. Like we are, we are ready to go. Like, and we're, we're, we're doing it like how coaches would. We're taking the time. We're, we're having the best of the best civil rights leaders and educators speak to our group and talk to us about the history of things, what things can be done to help. How can we collaborate and come together to make lasting change? Like, you know, cause that's our nature and our whole, our whole agenda is let's stay in our lane. What are coaches? Coaches are educators. Coaches are leaders, coaches are team builders. So everything we do is going to be around that with our community. And so we're going to do action steps. You can see Lloyd Pierce now, they, they got, uh, they're going to use Atlanta's arena now 
for early voting. You know, that's an action step. So now people got a safe, efficient way, a trustworthy way to go vote without all the BS that we saw in Georgia a few weeks ago where they suppressed people's votes, right? And so that's an action step. And so how many of us can put together action steps that, that create something real, you know, and not just a tweet or not just some words, hey, it's BS. That's great. I and mean, everybody should say that. What are you doing? Yeah. You know, what are you doing? And, that, and that's what it is. You, 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 right now, it's so much going on. And, like, them kids, we don't got no 80. Them kids is 30s from 90. If you if you were born in 90, you 30 years old. You ain't seen what happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But right now, we at a point where it ain't about just talking. Everybody, it's, it's time, time to do something. Do something. And, and, and the thing is, on. like, if, if I could say anything, like, people shouldn't feel like they have to hit the home run. Yeah. Right? Everybody ain't the home run hitter. Everybody yeah. ain't the guy that's up, you know, up, this up the ain't your role. Uh, so <laughs> you stay in your lane. Play your yeah. role. You know, but do yeah. it well. Star in your role. Figure out yeah. a way to impact, you know, whether it's small or big, but mm -hmm. do it well. And do it in a way that it can last because we're fighting against something that was put in place to keep us where we are. Yeah. Like, so people don't realize in a lot of ways, this, this whole system of government and how black people have been treated, it was actually put in place so that we don't thrive. It wasn't right. built for yeah. us to thrive. It wasn't built exactly. for us to have success. It was actually built to keep us in our place. And so we're, we have to really, really work hard to break this thing down. You know, this isn't some just one big outrage and all of a sudden it's gonna happen. Dr. Right. King couldn't get it done. Yeah. Like he got some stuff mm. changed, but he couldn't, this is the greatest leader of our time, right? This is, the, we're talking about a man who was on the front lines with John Lewis and, and, and Jesse Jackson, and they was out there for real marching and doing it without no nonsense, no, and taking hits upside the head and, and showing up the next day, showing up the next day, showing up the next day. And so the fact that they couldn't get that full global shift, it goes to show you how, how deep-rooted this system is, how deep-rooted systematic racism and white supremacy is and so the fact that now we have the numbers and we have the people in place in power positions that can actually make change now it's just a matter of getting out there and doing it yeah real talk Let's get in a little fun point this is this game we kind of play on the show we just throw out there start bench cut <laughs> you know uh first person is magic johnson the second person is d wade the third person is LeBron. Start bench. Cut. I gotta pick one for each. Yeah. Oh, that is wrong on so many levels. <laughs> like, come on, man. <laughs> I don't even know how to pick from that. That's so unfair. <laughs> yeah, oh, it'd be some tough. We should hear some of the ones we didn't ask a lot of people. <laughs> oh my God! I, none of this is a win for me. This is all bad for. me. Everybody gonna see this too, so you know you might be getting a couple of phone calls after this. I can play favorites, all right. <laughs> Whatever you want to do, however you want to do you it, it's on you. D Wade is one of Whatever my best friends, so it. I'm starting D Wade. There it is. Okay. Who benching? Who you benching? Magic or LeBron? I'm gonna bench Bron, and I'm gonna cut Magic so he can run the team. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. That's a great answer. Hey, listen, like you done got a couple head coaching gigs, man. Big, big, big. You know, little nice little pocketbook money for you, man. What 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 did you do? Did you buy a whip? I see you are in in a new house now, getting everything together. But 
Like, like, what, what did you do when you got the money? Said I gotta go ahead and you know whether you went and took wifey on a trip somewhere. What you did? I took wifey on a trip. Uh, we went. It was cool because actually, I part of the trip was paid for by our, by our good friend D Wade. But we went to Greece with D Wade and Gabby and Udonis and uh, Faith and a couple other friends. Uh, D Wright. Okay. D right and Mia was over there and uh you know we got to celebrate it and and the funniest thing happened. It was so funny, is uh because <laughs> you know I had that whole funny press conference where I went off about the refs and take that for that and all of that Data. stuff. <laughs> yeah. so, so we're 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 at one of these uh, Greek ruins and you know, people know who D Wade is obviously and stuff like that, but this 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 dad and his son comes up to me and they're from like Saudi Arabia and they're like Oh my God! Take this for data. Take that. <laughs> <laughs> and D Wade is like filming it. He's going, "Oh, this is some bullshit." <laughs> they know me now. He's like, "How is it that they know you now?" Like, and it was just die laughing. He's like, "Man, you officially made it because you now people starting to know you from other places in the world." But that was the first thing we did. And then I stole something out of your playbook when when Q was playing for us. I always loved. Q always had white cars. Still do. So now I'm just yeah. I'm, I'm following right in your footsteps. I got a I got two white cars sitting in the driveway. Nice rides for me. What are they though? What what are they though? Uh, That's the part I want to hear. What are they though? You said nice rides. I would like to hear the particulars. It on ain't that, it ain't D Miles Bentleys or nothing like that. <laughs> but we got we got a range, a new, new range. range. And we got hey. new big Tesla. You eat. I think about this. The range was a Christmas gift to my wife a few years ago. So the Tesla was a gift to myself until my wife drove it. And, and now the it. Tesla's hers. And I got to drive the range. So yeah, I want a Tesla. I want to I'm going to get me a minivan. All listen, these kids, I'm getting me a minivan. And listen, my <laughs> wife laughs at me. But I told her I want to trick out a minivan. And get Man. all the bells and whistles in it. And so when our kid comes, that's going to be what I'm driving my kid around. No minivans listen, are dope. No, no minivans are dope both right of now. Both of y'all are crazy. And y'all on y'all. I'm not going to lie. I, I've seen some very elite, very nice minivans. <laughs> but I will never be that washed that I'm, that you know I'm driving my really kids and my family Volkswagen, in a minivan. The old Volkswagen I'm never van. that washed. Oh, fat boy. Fat boy. Fat boy. With them hips. I, I want to I <laughs> do it up like a Sprinter on the inside. I want to. Hey, what's that? What's that? The 18 van? The 18? <laughs> Mr. T, the 18. Y'all make me feel. Put the spoiler on the back of that joint. Put the spoiler on the all right, man, that's a wrap, man. This has been love, man. We appreciate it, man. It couldn't have did it no other way, man. First NBA coach to come through. My main man, our brother, David Fisdale. Appreciate you, fam. Much love. Man, thanks for having me, man. You guys got a good thing going, man, and uh, keep keeping it real. No doubt. Players Tribune.com